Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Toby Amies is an artist filmmaker based on the south coast of England. He makes long and short films about the creative process in what he calls a vain attempt to compensate for his inability to come to terms with time and its passage. Amies is the director of the award-winning 2012 documentary The Man Whose Mind Exploded and the widely praised 2022 film In the Court of the Crimson King a revealing exploration of the extraordinary British prog rock band, King Crimson, and its 50-year history. Amy's reports that he is hoping for an autumn global release of the Crimson movie, which Chris Willman of Variety has already called about as good as rock documentaries get. Amy's loves tomatoes, being proved wrong, seashells, and cats. So, Toby, welcome to The Story Talks Back. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you for your time. Um, thank you. As someone who's become intimate with the concept of discipline in the last few years, I'm, I'm slightly trepidatious about talking back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, but, don't, uh, I don't usually talk back. Uh, it's, uh, right. it's my ambition, though. Um, I wanted to start out, and I usually start out the interviews by talking about stories and storytellers in your past Mm. so thinking about you know your childhood your formative years can you think about storytellers who may have influenced you or or particular stories that may have inspired you uh richard scary Mm. um i i loved the books of richard scary uh when i was growing up um particularly the character huckle um and um my sister and i used to play a game uh which we called jack um and uh both of us played a character called jack separate characters called jack rather uh and and one of us was always in trouble and <laughs> the the other jack was always helping the first jack out and they used to oscillate to as to which one of us was was in mortal danger normally it was you know a cliff or a shark or, or something like that but uh that was an early sort of uh storytelling experience for me i suppose and um i sort of mark my my kind of awareness of like cinematic storytelling from the time my dad took me to see the enigma of Casper Hauser at the Yves Schmart Center it must have been I suppose in the early 80s I think um, and that's where I think that's the point where I just became really aware of cinema's ability to take you to a completely different place um and and be immersed in that's such an incredible story as well and it also 
there's this sort of tone um, that Herzog's films from that period, I'm thinking particularly of, of Nosferatu as well, this kind of dreamlike tone to them. But there's, there's just a sort of, there's a, there's an assumption that what you are watching is real in those films, which is a sort of, is, is kind of magical. Um, so they, they had an enormous influence on me. Um, and then, um, uh, both my parents, um, well, my dad still is a great reader. My mum's not with us anymore, unfortunately, but they're both, they both consumed enormous amounts of literature. My mum was an English teacher. So I was exposed to, um, lots of different types of stories when I was growing up. And my, um, my dad was a great lover of science fiction. So I devoured an awful lot of mostly quite trashy science fiction. Um, but I, I absolutely adored it. And also my, um, my grandfather was, um, a fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs, who's most famous for um, Tarzan, of course, but before then, um, the the sort of Martian series, um, which now I think, I mean, especially with Tarzan, but if, I imagine if you look back on the Martian series as well, uh, they would be full of um, notions and, and concepts that would be considered very, very problematic. But at the time, I, I found them pretty inspiring because again you've just sort of you're thrown into these immersive narratives um which uh which as a young boy i just i just devoured and that should be a good example of just how long i can go on given a short question (laughs) sorry that's fine um but all of those as you said are are imaginative and and the two movies you've made so far are both quote-unquote true stories um so how do you sort of find a story that you feel needs to be told like how does what what in the story sort of signals to you that that this is something you can really sink your, uh, sink your teeth into um at the risk of sound you know coming up with sort of mystical bollocks i think it's the other way around if i'm honest i think the story finds you um mm. and and i sort of i suppose that with regards to my practice, um, I have it's sort of two pronged. Is that I make um, short films for for something approaching a living, um, and generally speaking, those films are commissioned and they're normally about the creative process in one form or another. Um, and then, with regard to the feature films. Uh, yes, it's that they can, the, the story tends to sort of like draw me in or advertise itself to me, I guess, in the sense, like with, with Draco, I, I saw him cycling past me because we used to live in the same neighborhood and he was wearing a cape, you know, with blue eyebrows and this shaved head and this extraordinary mustache. And, and my reaction was just to be like, you know, who on earth is that? Or almost like, what on earth was that? And I don't mean that in, in some sort of, objectifying way of him it's just i was just really kind of i mean he was like a a one-man intervention into the spectacle or creation of a of a far more interesting spectacle actually um and as you know as you know that the film really documents my 
my passage um, from a supposedly objective filmmaker to a highly subjective experience of, of the relationship I had with him. So in that sense, the film really kind of drew me in. And about a third of the way through the process of making that film, I was totally lost. You know, I just sort of didn't know what the narrative was going to be. I'd never made a long form film before. Mm. Um, and, and to be honest, and I don't mean this in an unpleasant way, but most of the people associated with the film had slightly lost interest in it at that point as well, because there didn't seem to be any particular end mm. uh, in, in sight. Um, so the fact that I became, or at least I felt responsible towards my subject, meant that, that the film, the the the. The form followed the function, I suppose, in that sense. And and then, of course, the the King Crimson documentary came out of The Man Whose Mind Exploded because I was having uh, Christmas drinks at, at Robert and Toya's house. And I was talking to Robert how somebody had recently contacted me on Instagram to say that they'd sort of developed a sort of a sex cult based on the notion of cosmic fuck, which is a tattoo that Jack Draco had on his chest. Um, and, and I was saying to Robert how great it was to have made, made something and put it out into the world. And then for it to mean something for other people that you could never have conceived of, you know? Um, and, that conversation led to Robert calling me the next day or, uh, or emailing me the next day and saying, you know, come over and have a chat. And, and he suggested the original title for the film, which was Cosmic Fuck, but fuck was spelled F-U-K-C, colon, prog rock, pond scum, set to bum you out. Um, <laughs> so, so that was another example of, of, of the story sort of coming to me rather than the other way around. And, it's um i was going to say in the current climate it's a very difficult way of making or not making films but of financing films um but i think that was the case when i started making the money's mind exploded as well people understandably i think if they're going to invest a lot of money want you to to be able to tell them what the film's going to be but the real joy the creative joy in it and and the process is to find the stories you're going along, you know, and not, not, I'm just not interested in, in imposing a worldview either on my subjects or ultimately on my audience. I mean, obviously it's highly subjective and I make lots of decisions as to where I'm pointing people's attentions and so on. But I want people to have the sense that they're making their own mind up. And, and because of that, um, I try to enter these these situations without too many preconceptions. And and I have to say, every time I do, every time I go, oh God, it'd be so cool or clever if I do this, and you know, so it never works. <laughs> never works. You know, yeah. so I've just I've I've learned to embrace the chaos. But that must be harder with a, a film where you have so many characters like the Crimson, you know. 
I mean, you have yes. a, a very clear central character, obviously, but. Mm. Um, I, I think it is, but simultaneously, you know, you're, de- you're ultimately you're dealing with archetypes. I think, I think, I think that again, this is, you know, I don't want to come up with too much pseudo mystical bollocks and so on, but I, I really do think more and more that, that we use, I can't really speak for anything else but cinema and I don't have a, you know, I'm not terribly experienced there either, but I, I think we, we go into these, these spaces and his and and interact with stories because we want to have the truths that we already in some part of us know mm-hmm. revealed to us or just des- described to us um and and to have our our experience of life reflected back to us in a way that we can we can sort of um make make better sense of ourselves so so i think that with with crimson where you've got was it at least four bass players i think mm-hmm. you know comes a point where if you're if you want somebody to talk about what the experience of playing bass in king crimson is like you use one bass player as the archetypal king crimson bass player effectively and and to to one degree or another, they speak for all of the bass players. Um, and very early on in the process, it became apparent that we were not going to be able to do justice to the experiences of, no one seems to know what the exact number is, but roughly 19 members of that band. So we had to we had to make some hard decisions in the editing suite, you know, about, about who we kept in and, and, and who we didn't, because otherwise you might got a broader spectrum of experience, but I don't think you would have got enough, enough depth or consequently insight from any one member to, to make sense of the whole experience. So, so there was a, there was a conscious sense that, one person's experience could speak for another's to a degree. And, and then we sort of separated um, the it, it effectively the, the sort of the, the previous, the older members of King Crimson, well, not older because there are some older members of King Crimson in the current band, but the, the sort of ex-members that effectively they were operating as a kind of chorus to speak to to the action that was happening in 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 the moment as it were and it seemed to me that you know you were also an important character in that film you know that not not in the way you know obviously for the man whose mind exploded but you know you were definitely a presence and and i had a sense of your personality how you were engaging with these people and, and particularly in the Bill Rifflin, you know, segments is clearly, you know, an affection there. Um, I mean, did your experience with the first movie sort of teach you anything about how you wanted to be involved in the second one and, and what your presence would be like? 
Yeah, yes, actually, and I think it goes it goes back before then that that I used to be a um, was a self taught portrait photographer, um, and before then I was a TV presenter, sort of professional show off, um, and and there was a fairly conscious shift behind the camera because being in front of the camera was driving me crazier. Um, and at at one point I picked up a camera when I was living in New York because I had a sense that time was moving too fast for me to make sense of it Um, and so I just was literally just would hold the camera out and and take pictures without really paying any attention to the frame frame and so on Um, in in the hope that at some point I might be able to look at those pictures and be able to process what I was going through much better than I was in the moment and then I ran out of money, and and this was before digital photography. And I was I looked at so I'd be spending like a hundred, two hundred dollars a week on processing. And I would look at the contact sheets, and I'd be like, "You literally cannot afford to be this bad at photography." <laughs> so, so I sort of I I sort of taught myself to be a better, hopefully, photographer. And then, and then I needed to make a, a living out of it. And so rather than doing doing do anything too ambitious or um or sort of artistic i i just got work any work that i could so i did a lot of wedding photography and i also sort of carved out a niche of sort of taking portraits of people for for trade magazines nothing fashionable or cool or you know um or but it was reasonably well paid and and i learned at the time there was the sort of academic discipline photography then was this sort of so-called deadpan style which was supposedly quite sort of uh objective approach to the subjects and and i really hated those photographs and i just increased because i would look at the people in those pictures and i was, and, and it always seemed to me like they were they were going what's he doing why, why is he not talking to me what you know why why is she why is she sort of all the way over there taking the picture and I, I don't feel really uncomfortable and so on and because I'd done all these taken these pictures of these real people if you like for these trade magazines and the weddings sort of thing I just sort of it became increasingly aware because you have to overcome people's fear of the camera you know there was a point when almost every day some I would turn up for work and somebody would say I'd hate having my picture taken and I was like, you know, so I used to say to her, you probably, to be honest, you hate the photographers who take your picture more than right. the process. Um, yeah. So it's a very long way of saying that, that, that like, I had this sense that, that some photographers would turn up and they would impose their ideas on the subject. And they would, you know, aesthetically, the photos were great and so on, but you wouldn't really learn about anything about the person other than what the photographer wanted to tell you. So, and because I'm garrulous in the show off and stuff, and I just like people, I spent a bit more time loosening people up with digital photography. You can show people how they look and so on, and that makes a massive difference. Um, gives them a sense of, of um, agency in the process, and it becomes a collaboration that way. Mm-hmm. And then you develop a rapport and a relationship with the person, and that's what you take a picture of. And and if you're taking a, it's like conceptually, it's lovely because you're taking a picture of something that's invisible, a relationship. Um, but also, I just felt like if you can make it make somebody laugh and you get a smile out of them or whatever, then you you create a connection and you record that, 
And then if you're looking at that picture, you sort of you get a bit closer to the person. You begin to understand the person. And that is absolutely how I, I make my sort of, you know, main proper films, if you like, or whatever, my, my features, is that it's not about putting me in there at all. And, and a big part of the editing process is trying to cut me out as much as possible because it's not my story. I'm not, I'm not interested in, mm. you know, I've been on telly for ages, so I don't, I don't have any need anymore to tell people about me directly in a way. Of course, everybody's work is autobiographical to one degree or another. But, but I, I, I try and establish relationships with my subjects that, that give the audience a way in to that person. And to do that without making my point of view apparent, I think would be disingenuous. At the same time, there's this, this uh, constant sort of balancing act going between like making sure I'm not in there too much and, and also making sure that there's a way in to what's going on. Plus, if you have a sense of this dialogue, then you have a sense that you're caught in a moment. And, and that's the thing that I sort of, excuse me, tea burp. Um, <laughs> that's the thing that I, I'm actually very excited about now in terms of making films is, and I think I work with a fantastic editor on this film, Ollie Huddleston, who's sort of very experienced um, in, in sort of classic observational documentary making. Mm. Um, and he deserves a huge amount of credit uh, for for the the Crimson film. Um, but we work together to to just create the sense of a moment. You know, again, it's it's about like creating a subjective experience for the audience rather than two objective ones. When we were making the man his mind exploded, I said to Jim Scott, another extraordinarily talented editor I worked with, I said that we should be careful never to show Draco as an object, mm. you know, that the, when we're, when we're really engaging with him, it's a subjective experience. Um, and there's only really one time where he's shown as an object. And that is where you see other people sort of objectifying, like pointing at him in the street and stuff. Mm. And by the time that happens in the film, it creates this reaction in the audience where they're like, Hey, he's, that's our guy, you know, don't, because they've already made that kind of that tractor beam of human connectivities locked on there and that, you know, they're on side there. And, and that first bit where you see him objectified by somebody else reminds them that they're on Draco's side. And from that point on, we've, I think we've got them in a sense as, as Draco had me, you know, I, I fell in love with Draco in pretty much the first day I met him. It's interesting though, because, you know, when you're a celebrity like Fripp, you are, you are also very recognizable and you stand out. People look at you, you know, stare at you potentially. So in a way, maybe that's a through line between the two experiences, you know? Absolutely. And, um, I mean, there are so many interesting conversations that are not in, in, uh, in the court of the Crimson King, um, but at one point I discussed with Robert why he, he talks about himself in the third person. And I think it's, or rather Toby Amy's thinks is it's very difficult <laughs> to, um, to do that and, and not sound at best odd 
but you know, were slightly crazy when you're talking about yourself in the third person. But I think in in Robert's case, it's it always struck me as a rather fearless and sincere effort to distinguish between his experience of himself and other people's experience, and and particularly expectations of him. Having said that, I want to stress, and not only because I might get into trouble, I want to stress that that like any time I, I try and paraphrase something that Robert said or understand things from his point of view, it all I just I just think it leads to trouble. You know, so I I I don't want to speak for him, but but I think that certainly insofar as I've interacted with famous people the ones who manage to stay sane and there's great irony in this are the ones who manage to create a secondary version of themselves that they interact in the outside world with because i don't think you can remain sane walking around doing the necessary thinking to work out what people that you've never met think of you but you're required to deal with people's expectations and assumptions about you when you interact with them. So it's, it's very complicated. It's a very good, you know, as I said, I used to be on that side of the camera and I was just like, this is going to drive me even crazier than I already am. So I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a very difficult place to be near impossible. And I know there are occasions where Robert has actively pretended not to be Robert Fripp. Not even pretended. He's just told people, "Oh no, no, I'm Robert Fripp's cousin." For example, <laughs> you know, wisely, I think. But it's. I mean, I wonder what it was like for you because, you know, to me, Fripp sees himself as the principal storyteller of King Crimson. You know, it's his story. He's the only consistent character through all. 50 chapters, you know. Um, I think he might be more inclined to use the word curator than character. Mm. Um, and and I don't, I think that he, after 52 years, I think maybe he's more comfortable with the notion that he is the band's leader, in inverted commas. Um, but simultaneously, I think one of the things that makes King Crimson what it is, is this very... Very unusual combination of there being certain qualities, and some of those qualities are metaphysical, which which make something King Crimson. At the same time, it's very hard to work out what the parameters are of what makes something King Crimson or not. And I think, again, it's not my place to speak for Robert, but my understanding is that he would much rather that that was something that somebody else worked out than he did. Mm. You know, I think, I think it's to his credit that on the one hand, in all of its iterations, it's, it's, it's been recognizably King Crimson. Simultaneously, it's been so because 
it's not just the rest of the music does not exist merely as as a frame in which his guitar work exists um so you know as michael giles says in the film it's his baby but he needs lots of midwives uh-huh. you know so i think um but i you know i think i mean it's also i mean i worked in the music industry in very various capacities for nearly 30 years and you know with bands it's so hard to to have them operate with any degree of fairness let alone any degree of like democracy and still continue and yet at the same time if you're the leader everyone bitches about you um so it's it's a it's a near impossible situation uh to put yourself in i think and and there are no, i don't think there are any perfect solutions um but also i don't think he is i don't think he's the type of tyrant most people think he is in that way there's the you know the famous bill bruford quote that he's like a cross between um, Joseph Stalin, Mahatma Gandhi, and the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's it is interesting that you know everybody, all the current members in the film, you know, when they're talking to you, them a lot of them are kind of looking over their shoulder, you know, they're you know concerned about what they're going to say. So it's, but. But is that that quality of being a tyrant what made King Crimson last? You know, is that what held it together? Without that, again, I don't. I I just don't. I honestly like again. It's I don't like talking for him, but I think he hates telling people what to do. I hate telling people what to do, and I'm a director. You know, and it's like a sort of I have a certain degree of sympathy for someone who <laughs> it's like if you go to robert with a problem that like no if you come to me with a problem and it's clearly a problem that you could have solved yourself um that prevents me from focusing on something that only i can solve whatever and i think i think it's more that's more the dynamic than it is that than it is a particular kind of tyranny um but then i also didn't i haven't had experience of the earlier iterations of the band and as 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 colin says in the film you know that that robert's been on his own journey as well and he also starts the film saying that you know he's basically found the experience of being in king crimson wretched until about 2013 so Anything that he's perceived to be putting other people through, he puts through himself, puts himself through rather as well, I think. And I think it's just, it's it's an extremely demanding environment, but having spent time in it, although I'm, you know, clearly not a band member or anything, having clips with, I, I am as aware now of the demands that I put on myself in that space almost more than I am aware of demands that anybody else is putting me under. Mm. You know, it's sort of, um, 
it's a it's a space in which you have a sense of of total creative freedom but also absolute personal responsibility mm. and i i you know i i could be making an enormous generalization here but personal responsibility is not a quality i associate with a lot of musicians <laughs> again i could be very i could be being very unfair <laughs> um but um but i think you know if you once you once you can do that as an artist if you you know you take don't take yourself seriously but take your work very very seriously um then you know the possibility of making good art in in is increased a little um but you can you know it's so much easier to drive yourself mad than let somebody else do it i think mm. I was really interested in the, you know, the man whose mind exploded, you know, someone who has no memory of what just happened, you know, and he creates this environment, which is basically like a living story. You know, he's got yeah. these, all these pieces of paper hanging from his ceiling to remind him of who he is and, and what he does. How, how did hanging around someone like that change your idea of, of, did you ever think of that in terms of stories? Like how, how does that change the importance of stories or where they come from? I mean, he's somebody who sort of has no, he has a backstory, but he has no current story moment to moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of for, for people who can, who can remember sort of analog tape recorders and players, um, you know, at one point Drax says the recording machine in my head doesn't work. And, right. And, um, we had this uh, fantastic uh, expert, Dr. Martin Conway, um, who's a neuropsych- neuropsychologist, I believe, um, who, who sort of did a quick diagnosis of Draco, um, where he said he, that he figured that he was suffering from, uh, I can never remember how to pronounce it probably, anti-regrade amnesia, which is basically the, the, the playback part of the of the recording machine works but the record one doesn't anymore due to damage to his hippocampus that he had in, in an accident so so he has access to memories that were sort of recorded in his brain prior to his accident but no access to any useful access to things that had happened after it and and martin said that that oftentimes the experience of that is that your memories are almost third person is that is that you can remember that you walked across a field but you can't remember the experience of walking across that field mm. um is so your 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 autobiography becomes a biography effectively mm. um and that does uh, very strange things to one's sense senses sense of self I'm now going to move from the scientific into the metaphysical bollocks um, <laughs> uh, arena. And, and, and people said that like the, that to some degree, and again, I, I'm not a scientist, but that your brain following the serious trauma can sort of rewire to some degree. Um, and, and perhaps the sort of, story analogy there is that 
Draco had sort of rewired his his sense of identity of his personal story into his flat. Mm. You know, in one of the strap lines that we have for the movie is that an invitation into his home is an invitation into his mind. Mm-hmm. And so so that he'd sort of made as best he could a version of his memory that he could activate and access more easily mm-hmm. that, that he actually lived in. Um, when, um, when I began thinking about making, editing the film, finishing it, um, I, I was very much inspired by... Um, uh, I think it's Fantastic Voyage. I always get it up mixed with Incredible Journey, but Fantastic Voyage is the one where people miniaturize themselves and, and mm-hmm. go into the president's uh, brain. And that's kind of what I felt like the man whose mind exploded was a bit, was that which is sort of exploring somebody from the inside out, although you're not because they'd actually put the inside out already for us. And that was, that was the, right, right. this incredible autobiographical montage 3d montage that he lived in i mean i sort of the first time i went there to his flat i uh i was like this is a this is a like an outsider installation i mean the term outsider is terrible everybody knows what it means it's still not been a better one invented but it's not it's not right um but it was like, yeah, it was a, a, a sort of a, a, an intuitive artwork, an artwork that had just come from a place of necessity more than um, aesthetics. Um, so it was, yeah, it's like this, certainly not a traditional three-act narrative, but there is a, a, a story in in Draco's, uh, in, in Flat and, and how he decorated. And interestingly, though, if you were going to think of a narrative, um is that he used to be a dancer before we trained as an interior designer and then became a design a dancer. And to to move through that flat, you had to sort of perform a strange dance mm. because there was so much that you would bump into um, on the way. I just, I mean, I wouldn't want to be trapped inside his head, but but it would be quite the experience to to be inside his head. Right. I mean, you said that your, you know, your subjects find you. Um, but is there anything right now that you really would like to say? I, I want to tell that story. I think that. I think the thing is, is that you. What really appeals to me about documentary cinema is as opposed to documentary television which is what most documentaries are at this point Mm -hmm. um is is that sense of immediacy or or, of that sense that you can you can give the audience a a sense that that they're existing in the moment that is being shown on screen you know and that's that's really important to me is that it's sort of I think I need the help of talented editors and producers to 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 guide me in in structuring a film in such a way that it's palatable to an audience and and makes sense mm. um because left to my own devices it would just be a series of moments stuck together 
um, <laughs> of like you know moments like there's the there's the moment in the film where Robert starts shouting at me because I'm asking stupid questions, or one of the moments where Robert starts shouting at me because I'm asking stupid questions, um, and that's just like it's just it it's sort of it's not particularly well filmed and exposed or whatever, but it's like you're like whoa this is really happening and it's really you know tense and stuff, um, so. It's hard to say because of that, because that's what I like. It's hard to say necessarily where I will find moments like that in terms of writing a treatment, mm. you know, that says, or, you know, so, so. There's no you way know, you can I mean, anticipate that, right? Not really. No, I mean, you can anticipate it by, um, by making sure that you're in the right place at the right time or other people you know, call it luck. Um, but um, it's, you have to be, you know, for every time you're in the right place at the right time, you're at the right place in the wrong time or the wrong time in the right place, you know, tens of thousands of times. So, but it's like those moments are the things I really like. That's, that's like, that's how I like to carve out uh, my films. So, it's just hard to know where to get them and, and sort of stories that like are already pre-existing. I mean, I did, I did at one stage um, quite a few years ago think, I was like, I think, I think there's probably a story in that we work bloke. Um, yeah. And I left it a bit late to sort of get involved there. Um, so I suppose, you know, you can have a sense um, of that, but at the moment I'm, um, I'm making a film about the beach that's at the end of my street. It's about half a mile from my house. And, and, and currently that's some, that involves filming a lot of waves. And it's got nothing to do with not wanting to have anything to do with any complicated personalities at all. <laughs> um, but that's a film about place and it's a film, it's going to take me two or three years to make, I think. Um, and I have no idea where that's going. Um, but it's, I know there's a story there. I just don't know what it is at the moment. And, and fortunately, because it's the end of the road, the, 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 the sort of literal and metaphorical costs of, of engaging with it, with the camera, are, are relatively small. So I can afford to sort of let it develop and not, and not sort of have to pitch it to anybody. Dave, I'm sorry, I do go on. I do, you know, like I said, I need to work with talented editors. No, no, this is great. I really appreciate your time, Toby. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me and uh, sharing your thoughts. Did you like the film? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I really yeah? thought it was very well. You know, you, 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 brought, you brought all the personalities out and you really, you had a point of view without sort of being overbearing, you know? That's my feeling. Mm. Um, Thank you. I think, um, you know, you asked about Bill and and you also were just talking about, like, having a sense of what a story could be and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, I, think, I think there was a sort of unspoken understanding between me and Bill that we both knew that his awful circumstances were the thing that would allow me to communicate through Bill to the audience 
not only that, that King Crimson matters, you know, a bit more than your average rock and roll band, um, but the music matters, you know, the, the sort of, it was, I remember getting some resistance um, when I said I wanted to sort of have Bill talking, saying these awful things about what he's going through, mm. um, and then putting that in opposition. It's not in opposition, but together, really, with with people applauding. And it's not it's not because it's like they go, "Hey, Bill, you're great." It's like he's standing there, and he knows that even though the seconds are ticking by much faster for him than than pretty much everybody, anybody, certainly anybody else in the band that you can see it's like this is totally worthwhile this is a worthwhile endeavor mm-hmm. and you understand why he would spend his last days doing that mm-hmm. um so that's a cheerful note to end on <laughs> no i and i think it reminds me that you really made all of the people in the band human you know i really felt their humanity their their personalities and not just that they are these famous musicians you know yeah no i think it's it's like it's i mean that's again that's what you go into cinema for you don't you know when i was working in television and so on there's this constant narrative of success and nothing's wrong and you know sort of and there's a sort of i think that hypnotizes an audience to some degree and ultimately makes people miserable um but i think that when you see people genuinely struggling with with things that everybody struggles with. I think you do, you make a, you make a human connection with it. And I think it was, I used to say, I'm making a film about the human condition using King Crimson as a medium. It's pretentious, but it's, it's true. It's like, I mean, life's too short to do anything else than I think, isn't it? I mean, you know, you want, mm-hmm. you want to get something out of it. Or well, I want the audience to get something out of it. Really appreciate it, Toby. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Dave. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Carlos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to The Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.